Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Mind to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, we have an expert on commercial real estate uh, that's going to be talking about what's happened in the past year, how you can go and take advantage of it. His name is Terry Painter. He's author of the Encyclopedia of Commercial Real Estate Advice. And if you're serious about commercial real estate, this is a must-have book and one that you're going to want to keep. So, Terry, welcome. Thrilled to have you today. Good to be with you, Mark. So, Terry, uh, give us a little bit about your background before we go into the book and also tell us why did you write this book? Well, you know, it's interesting. Okay, well, um, most real estate Invest, most real estate people who write books come from the investing world where they've owned lots of shopping centers, apartment buildings, and so on. I've invested in all kinds of real estate, but my background is that for the last 24 years, I've been a mortgage banker and, and a commercial mortgage broker. So, uh, and I've actually worked, I've just financed hundreds of different types of properties and I love it. I'm, I'm the type of person that when, it, when uh, Monday comes around, I can't wait for that to happen because I can't wait for the weekends to get over so I can get back to work, which is, which is very annoying to my wife. So, <laughs> yeah. I hear you. I'm, uh, I'm somebody who actually works like uh, six days a week. I work Sunday through Friday. So I totally understand that. So what, what are the three things that you would like readers to walk away with from reading this book? Okay. Um, well, okay. So I wrote this book, actually, Wiley, my publisher, they published the dummies books. They're best known for that. Actually contacted me um, to see if I'd be interested in writing this book. And so I actually work for a lot of very wealthy people. And some of them have been with me when they were not that wealthy. Like I have a client that started with a sixplex in Oakland, California, that he bought uh, uh, around the year 2002 for, you know, about 460,000. And then from there today, he's worth over 30 million. So I've seen his financial empire grow and he could not have done that just with investing in single family homes. Uh, commercial real estate just, you know, is amazing. And so one of the reasons I wrote this book, the uh, encyclopedia of commercial real estate advice is to actually guide people, uh, just to go into that, uh, just to take the leap. And if you're already investing in some fix, fixers and flippers, or you own some single family rentals, even if you own one, start thinking about expanding because the economy of scale will really pay off. Yeah, I, I, I think so as well. And as I was mentioning to you, my uncle started out with nothing, started to buy a few properties. And by the time he sold out, he and his partner, they had $500 million worth of properties that they accumulated mm -hmm over a 30 year period. So, and he did quite well. So I think everyone's interested right now in what the impact short and long-term is with the pandemic, uh, especially in the commercial market in the US and around the world, because we hear from listeners all over the planet uh, that are tuned in today. And, you know, we hear people saying, oh, nobody's ever gonna come back again into their offices, but then we just, I just read yesterday that Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan said everybody has got to come back uh, to J.P. Morgan. I think it's at the beginning of next month that he expects everybody in. So what's your take? What's going to happen here in the commercial market? Well, because we are in the corona, we are actually right now still in the coronavirus recession. And uh, most recessions happen because real estate prices really get out of hand and not really based on something real uh, and they're based on more you know on the whims of uh, buyers sellers and you know real estate brokers and so this is this is different right now with, the, with this recession this recession was caused by a pandemic it's an anomaly in most recessions once we get this far once you get about nine months in and we're close to a, we're about a year in uh, usually real estate prices start dropping because because there's a lot of uh, foreclosures and um, and also there's just 
uh, there's no new, no new construction starts and so on. So, but in this case, this is really strange. I, I uh, recently wrote an article for Forbes.com, which is titled, Are You Buying at the Top of the Real Estate Market? And because you know, inventory on all kinds of properties are so low right now. So this what's happened in this recession is that um, uh, prices on commercial properties are just like what's happening with homes right now throughout the country. They are ridiculously high. They don't really make sense. The return on investment isn't good. You have to buy something that's the best of the worst. It's not something that you really would normally just buy. If you somebody's doing a 1031 exchange, they can't find, I have four or five clients right now that cannot find properties to you know, exchange into, to, you know, replacement properties. And, and so it's really an, it's an unusual time. It's not really a good time, in my opinion, to actually buy, uh, if you're, you know, if you're, uh, trying to buy a rental right now, what you're going to find is that it doesn't really pencil. Even like if you were to buy, uh, like I own a rental house in Kissimmee, Florida, uh, and which was purchased a long time ago, under $100,000. And so, but, but based upon the rent that you, because now that house is worth over 260000 And just based upon what I could, the rent that I could get for today, which is about 1600 pool, it's just really not, it's not really cost effective. I mean, that house has got to be, there, there's like a lack of single family rentals in the United States right now because property values for those are so high that they don't, if somebody were to buy one, they, they would never be able to rent it out for uh, for their what their cash on cash return expectation would be. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, sure, sure. The, the 1035, as I said, did I say that right? 1031, that's when you sell your house and- 1031. Can you just quickly explain that for people who don't know what that is? Yeah, actually, it's an incredible loophole. And that's how a lot of my clients have gotten quite wealthy, is what you can do is actually, you could do this with your own home for that matter. It's the same process. You can buy a nicer home, take your equity, and keep trading up. And as long, until you actually completely liquidate everything, and you know, you know, you don't trade up anymore, there's no tax event. So you're actually, it's, I can't say it's tax free, but it's tax deferred. It's, it's called the tax deferred, a 1031 tax deferred exchange. And uh, I've had clients that have started out with, let's say, a 12plex. And then after four or five years, that property, the rents have gone up. They could sell that property at a, a sizable profit. And then they'll buy something larger that has more income and more depreciation. So that's actually, and, and it doesn't cost them. It's a way of really having your wealth grow without having to pay taxes on the gain on that property. It's a phenomenal opportunity. Only in America do we have this. So, uh, yeah, very fortunate about that. Um, and, and we've seen a lot of people here in Philadelphia leave uh, for the suburbs. And I know somebody in my building here said that they looked at 150 properties offered full price, same day and got outbid by 10, 20%. Right, it's that, it's that way with a lot of commercial properties. Uh, hotels, retail, for the most part, and hospitality, which are hotels, you know, I think I said hotels, uh, and office properties are, there's not a lot of those on the market, but they're not, those have not really gone up in value because they're just, they've been really hurt badly by the coronavirus recession. But uh, all, the, all the property types of the commercial world are either there's just not enough there's not enough inventory also so prices have soared on those as well so it's not really a really great time to buy uh, I've always recommended to to my clients to buy that you make your money on the buy which is getting it for a good price I mean if you if you pay let's say a hundred thousand uh, dollars for an apartment building over what it's worth it's going to take think about how long it's going to take you to rate let's just say this would be probably a six or an eight plex today think about how long it's going to take you to raise the rents to bring in a hundred extra hundred thousand dollars. So, uh, you know, and, and we eventually, once the recession is over, people, and, you know, there's more inventory, more new construction starts, prices will become more reasonable again, or they'll come down. So we see this happen in a cycle over and over where people are thinking that, oh, this is, I've got to buy this now. I've got to buy today because prices are going to keep going up. Uh, sellers aren't really selling right now because they're thinking prices are going to go up even higher. You know what they're they're waiting, or they're gonna, you know, you're gonna get this ridiculous this ridiculous bidding process where you're gonna end. You know, if you're buying an income property, you've got to think about it as a, as a business based upon what it's earning. And it's like if you were buying, like let's just say, uh, 
a, 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 a company that was actually manufacturing jewelry, let's just say earrings, you know, you, know, you would buy that company yep. based upon its annual earnings, verified on tax returns. You're not going to buy it just because there's, you know, you know, because there's just so few properties of that business of that type being sold right now, you're going to pay more for it. You know, you got to think of real estate in the same way. Um, we have a question here from somebody from the audience. I'm purchasing a small industrial uh, flex space property with three tenants with long-term uh, leases yielding 12% return. Does Terry think that we are overpaying? Oh, absolutely not. Oh, absolutely not. Those are the, some of the most difficult. Okay, we we find we, oh, my clients looking for those property types of properties, and they're really hard to find. And there's some of the most golden opportunities in, in commercial real estate. Why? Because these tenants take really their businesses are located there. They take care. Um, they really take care of the property, and they, even if they hit, if they you know, come upon hard times. If their you know business was even affected by this recession we're in, they're still going to pay their rent because they, they know they can't find another uh, you know industrial space like that. So so that's that's really those are some of the best performing properties today. Actually, getting a twelve percent return. You know, I'm similar. If you're talking about a cash on cash return, uh, that's based upon just the income from operations, based upon what your down payment is. And that's really outstanding today, right in this market. So, uh, and you know, you'll be able to put in annual rent increases, and uh, it sounds like a really great opportunity. Excellent, excellent. I bought into a storage facility last year with a group of other investors, and I kind of um, liked it because uh, even the downside, if they were for what we bought it for, even if we were only 55% yeah. occupied, we still made well, money, but we were 95% occupied. And I like storage facilities. Yeah, I point out in my book, actually, that for the newbie, people who are just getting into commercial real estate, that is a really good property type to buy because it actually cash flows very nicely. Most of them do at under 85% occupancy, where almost any other type of commercial property is considered distressed. It's at 85% occupancy or lower, but not self-storage. Um, the, and they're really easy to uh, they're really easy to maintain. All you have to do if somebody moves out is sweep it out. It's not like like an apartment yes, unit where you have it. to yeah. repaint it, make it ready, replace floor coverings and damage to this and damage to that. It's a really great property type. The downside on, on self-storage is just that um, is that sometimes if you're in a local, if you're in a um, town where they're just where the city's not uh, mandating fewer of those, then somebody can put in one right next door or close by. They're going to undercut their rents. They take a long time to fill when they're new. So they're, they're going to really undercut their rents and they're going to take uh, tenants from you to begin with. So that's, that's like the downside. But otherwise, uh, they do well during good times and bad. People during a recession move into, you know, into apartments and they have all their stuff. They have to go to self-storage. And even during uh, good times, self-storage does great too. So uh, in the book, you, uh, I wanted to know, what did you mean when you were asking the question, who are you when buying a commercial property? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I assure you, nobody else in my line of work or writing a book like this would ever ask that question. But um, I've worked, okay, so I've, I've done a lot of seminar teaching, uh, working with real estate professionals and just newbie real estate investors. And a lot of them just go off on a tangent. They're looking for the best return. They don't really, really, they don't really think about who they are. And what I found over the past 24 years is that knowing who you are as a real estate investor is the most important thing. How is this investment going to change your life? Number one. Okay. So people think, well, I'm just going to invest in like this 12 plex and I, and I'm going to manage it myself. But the question is, do you have the time? Are you already working a full-time job? Is your spouse and kids already complaining that they don't have enough time with you? So it's really it's, it's really about thinking about what your goals are for this property. You know, are you buying it? It's also about that. Are you buying this uh, to fix and flip? Are you buying it for, as a long-term uh, you know, for retirement and so on? But it's really knowing your goals and also knowing how the property is going to affect your lifestyle. And that's what, no, and otherwise, in my book, I tell uh, the story about one of my clients who felt like she was internet dating. <laughs> it's a funny story. 
when she was looking, decided to move in, she sold four rental properties. Uh, she owned them almost free and clear. She decided she was going to move into commercial in Syracuse, New York, and buy an apartment complex. But she went, you know, she just kept thinking. the next, that didn't work out. So then she went to a small strip mall. Then she went to self-storage and she kept flipping around, not realizing that she really needed to find something, decide, you know, to just, are you going to, you know, deciding to buy something closer to home or out of state. This is all part of deciding who you are. Do you want, do you, do you, you know, people, this is not necessarily, investing in real estate is not a get rich quick, you know, easy scheme. It, it takes work. It's a business. So I have a question from the audience. How transferable the knowledge that you have shared in your book is to other commercial property markets in other countries? That's a really good question. And I'm going to be very honest and tell you that I really don't know the answer to that. And I'll tell you why. We, uh, in America, it's just, uh, you know, I would say Canada for sure is uh, progressive in some of the same ways. But in America, we, there's just such a, just so much encouragement for investing in real estate and making money from that. And they give you tax advantages and so on. And, and also the lending world, which I'm a part of, is exceptionally favorable in America. It is in Canada, but we don't, they don't have as high loan to values as we have on investment properties. So, so I really don't. So my experience from, like I have a brother-in-law in England, he has to put, they have to put like at least 40% down to buy a home. You know, 50% is more than could be even the norm. Same in the Netherlands, uh, a lot of places in Europe. So I bought, I bought a home in Panama, and now this was 20 years ago, and we rented it out. And the hard part was coming up with somebody who would loan you the money. So yeah, there you go. I wasn't a citizen of Panama, and they wouldn't loan it to me. And luckily for me, I worked for bankers, I had bankers as clients, like CEOs of banks. And I told the banker, and she, and she said, well, I guess I'll have to make that loan for you. And she did, and, and it got done. But if I did not have that, that would have been the biggest stumbling block because they were telling me most people buy it with cash uh, in these countries. Right. And yes. so um, one of the questions for the audience is asking, I believe this to be true, is your book uh, recommended for beginners? If not, what, uh, what do you recommend to start? I think it's a great book for beginners. Actually, to tell you the truth, it's interesting when the publisher contacted me to see if I'd be interested in writing this book. I told them two things. One is that I, I don't know how, but I'm not going to write a boring book. Because if you think about it, Encyclopedia of Commercial Real Estate, that does, that does not sound very interesting. The other thing, too, is that I've actually really worked over the years. I kind of fell into it, actually training new people into getting into commercial real estate. I have a, one of my best buddies wrote the book, Commercial Real Estate for Dummies. And that's an excellent one for just starting out. Mine is just we laugh about who wrote the best book for commercial real estate. But he has a mentoring business. That's what he does for a living. Is he, he coaches and mentors new people into getting into it. But but I told the publisher also, okay, well, because they were looking for somebody for to write this for real estate professionals, for colleges and universities, and so on. I said, well, if I'm going to write this, I'm going to encourage new people to get into it because what I don't like is that most, so many of my clients are filthy rich. I would say about a fourth of them inherited money to get that way in commercial real estate. And the rest have had to work their way up, but I've seen how they've grown. And they've started with something rather small, like a single family home or a duplex or something, but they've moved up into commercial real estate. And the and commercial real estate has the same basic principles of any investment property. The only thing of it is it has much greater payoffs and you just get rich faster with commercial real estate. So yes, I would encourage you to get my book because it's written for, it's really written. People say that it's just fun to read. I tell all these, tell a lot of stories for my clients and it's designed to actually encourage people and train you how to do it. I think it's an easy read and it literally covers everything from my own experience of uh, investing in different types of real estate. Could you please share the, the uh, seven top character, uh, character traits of experienced commercial real estate investors? Sure. Yeah, what I have to do, the, the very first one is just really having confidence in, and not being, and being unstoppable. Uh, in 2004, I made a loan to an LADPD uh, police officer. What is that? 
it's a Los Angeles police officer. And okay. she calls me and says she's going, she wants to buy this uh, property in Wichita, Kansas. So I said, well, how much is it? She said 6.8 million. And, and I said, well, it's a, it's a you know, uh, uh, close to, a, it's like a 160 unit apartment complex. I said, well, if you, how much did you have to put down? She said 160,000. So I tried to tell her that she didn't have the money or experience. I said, why don't you just buy it? like a fourplex, which is what she could afford right now. And she said, please don't insult me. This is what I want to do. So she had taken a course uh, called the Maui Millionaires, which trained her how uh, that she could actually raise investors. And that was out of my uh, wheelhouse back in those days. But what happened is that because she didn't know she couldn't do it, she actually, she raised, uh, she brought in a really high uh, net worth individual there was an executive at Intel and her parents and a bunch of other investors and she pulled it off. So she bought this property. So uh, being unstoppable and having confidence, she just didn't know she couldn't do it. And that's definitely a plus. Another one is just being able, being able to make the right choices at the beginning. A lot of people, uh, I mean, we really learn from experience. And so if you don't have the experience, uh, then you really want to bring in a mentor or partner that has that experience because otherwise you could be making, making a lot of mistakes and those are very costly in real estate. Uh, the third one is if you fall in love with the property, which a lot of people do, by the way, are you, you know, can you walk away from it? If you, after you do your due diligence, there's this getting to know you uh, in a relationship with the property. It's very much like dating. We're going to, you know, if you're looking for a potential spouse event, and what happens is that people fall in love at first sight. And I have a lot of clients that do that. I don't get to do that because I'm looking at, at the numbers. I'm a numbers person. So if you find out that the investment is not what you think it is, uh, then are you willing to move on? Uh, another one is uh, you know, buying close to home. If you're starting out, it's much better. Uh, and experienced realtor, I mean, experienced property investors know this. Why do they buy close to home to begin with? Because they know the property values, they have their experienced uh, team, you know, uh, you know, they have, you know, contractors that they can work with, the property needs work, they, they have experienced real estate professionals and so on, and they know, and they have lenders to get help them too. Uh, you know, actually being, having experience in that property type or getting, getting experience is really important. Uh, another one is uh, knowing what your value add strategies are gonna be at the beginning. What's really amazing is that a lot of property owners of income property actually just get burnt out or they're just older and they don't realize that their rents are under market and if they just make these changes and you know since you're you know you're an entrepreneur mark you can relate to this but this is an entrepreneurial endeavor so uh, just looking at the property and getting excited about what you could do to make it better you know maybe you just have to put in new floor coverings give it a new coat of paint give it a new name some new branding Knowing what your value adds are going to be at the beginning is really important. And then uh, lastly, just knowing what your risk level is. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't go into buying commercial real estate or investment property knowing that. You know, I've, I've had clients that have bought uh, one to two rentals, uh, rental properties, and have made a mistake because they really paid too much for the property for what its potential rent could be. And... You know, so that you know, they still when they've sold the property, they've generally made money on appreciation. So that's the saving grace. I I I think that also, at least this is my own view of this, is if you're buying residential property, it'd be really good if you're handy. I am not the least bit handy. And so I have to have other people do everything for you. But I what do you think about that? Yeah, that, that's really a good that's really good. So if you're buying a single family home. And you're gonna you're going to improve it. It's not going to be that cost effective unless you get it at a really good price, which is not even possible right now, unless you could do some of the work yourself and do some of the repairs. What's great about going into making the leap and buying six units or more, which make or five units or more, which may, which is where it becomes commercial real estate, or even ten or twelve units or more, is that now you're the economy of scale and you could afford pro a property management manager and you could have. Uh, the repairs and maintenance done for you and afford to do that. Terry, don't you also have to take a look, because this is, again, this is an experience for me, and I didn't have this problem, but somebody else, I, a couple of people I know have had this problem. 
where somebody rents the property from them, at least in Pennsylvania, they pay them for the first month and they decide they're not going to pay them anymore. And they know it takes like nine months to get them out. Meanwhile, you're on the hook mm -hmm. to uh, pay for that mortgage. Should you be looking yeah. at the laws in any jurisdiction or are they all basically the same? Well, no, well, I would say I would say more than jurisdiction. I would say, okay, I would say neighborhoods. Okay, so the very yeah. best deals, I mean, the very, the most cost, the, the properties that actually produce the most income are D quality properties. And I met my first D property when I went to visit a client that uh, had a property in a very dangerous neighborhood in Cincinnati. And the only reason I knew that is when I pulled in with my rental car, there were about four teenagers that were rocking the suspension and just laughing at my shock and, and, and what they were doing. Mm -hmm. The guy comes out, but, but it, what it really came down to, but, um, what it really comes down to is that, uh, as far as just to answer your question very directly, is that buying in a C-class neighborhood that that has, um, there's just where, where people are taking care of the units. There's, there's, you don't have like junk on the patios and, and, the, and the yards, the yards aren't brown and, you know, with the grass and so on, but you can see there's pride of, of their, their occupying that unit. That really makes a difference because otherwise, uh, you know, we, we have, um, you know, in my book, I tell quite a few stories about, about this exact situation where people, where, um, clients of mine have actually bought properties that were the were the previous uh, seller just actually the seller actually just put anybody in so he could get the occupancy up so he could sell it. But what he, what they've done is something that really is ripe for what you're talking about. They've done is they they've said they were going to pay one month's rent and a hundred dollar deposit and uh, I'll give you your second month's rent free just to fill the unit. So now when they're selling the property, the rent roll looks full. What happens is that those tenants sometimes never intend to pay a second month's for a third month's rent, and unless and the, the remedy in most states is to actually rent month to month. Lenders prefer if you have you know you know you know at least six month leases or longer, but but it's easier to evict somebody if they're on a monthly rental than on a on a lease. So um, so you really want to my you really uh, what I've learned from my from my uh, clients is just that they say. That, that, that and for my own rental properties is that actually rental references are even more important than checking out your your tenant's credit. You know, really getting... Oh, yeah, I always did that. I always checked out their um, backgrounds and so forth. And then when I had property in other places, I hired ex-policemen to manage the property. Yeah, but well, if you have to do that... That, but, that was very effective. Yeah, but, I've had, but I've had clients that have bought in bad neighborhoods. And what you want to also do is get a crime report. You could, you might, you know, in my book, I talk about that too. And you could actually uh, just go online and, and uh, it's not expensive. We could get some for free. Find out how many robberies there are in that neighborhood on a monthly basis you know so uh you don't have to work i typically i, I typically bought in, in middle class and the example i gave you was actually, actually upper middle class um property so let's go sure. to another question we have from the audience what are the downturns uh what are the downturns of commercial property investment compared to residential real estate it's actually um probably the largest uh, downturn. The, actually, the largest. And we're talking about risk here. Um, if you if you buy one or two rental properties and you pay a good price for them, you could act. That's something that you could actually you could really take a look at what's going to happen with that property. You could take a look at these. Let's just say that these properties have been appreciating it about six to eight percent a year. Right now, they're off the charts, but and that you could likely count on that. You could also take a look at that one unit, and I'm talking. Let's talk about you know residential properties and multifamily apartment properties right now. You could take a that take a look at that in one or two units. You could walk those units and know exactly from a property condition report on those two units, and you're observing it, seeing the property, what the condition is. So what happens when you buy commercial property is that you have more units. So my advice to everybody is to walk every unit and to, to really know the quality. So not knowing the quality of the property, even if it's like a small strip mall, you know, you, you know, you, you want to look for, um, you know, cracks in the, in the driveway, leaks in the roofs, all these things that are, might not be visible right away to know the condition. But also what you also want to do, which you also, because you're going to have many tenants, it's really difficult to know 
how many people on the rent roll are actually paying the rent. So there's just a lot more due diligence. There's a lot more work. Uh, when you're buying the property, you want to actually get uh, actually uh, you know, a rent collection report and, and actually check to see that everybody is paying the rent and paying when they're paying it. You want to get an accounts payable report. And there's a lot more. It's a bigger business is what I want to say with high risks. I hope that answers the question. Uh, you mentioned the various uh, market cycles and the best time to buy. What phase are we in right now? And is now a good time to buy or did we miss it when the pandemic started? And it sounds like that, that could be, you've been kind of answering that question along the way here. Yeah. And so this, like I mentioned earlier, uh, this is, we are in the coronavirus recession and this recession is only where prices are going up. About this time, prices should be coming down. I have clients that have money put away for recessions. They have happen on an average of every six years in America. And so they, they just wait and they know if they once, uh, after about nine months for foreclosures for are starting to happen, uh, banks are selling properties on the courthouse steps and property values start coming down. But right now that's not happening. So with, with everything, so after the, uh, the recession phase comes the recovery phase. So we have lots of recovery that our economy needs to make, but, but you know, there's certainly, um, but for, at this time, there are almost no new construction starts. Construction starts are still just starting to happen on residential properties and just, and are barely starting. That's one of my top specialties is commercial, uh, you know, commercial construction, you know, and uh, it's just really not, it's really hard to, get lenders to feel comfortable on new construction. So, so that's not happening. So we're really not, uh, this is really not a good time to buy right now, where normally it would be. Uh, the best time to buy is actually when, when, the, when the recovery phase is just started, just kicking off, because uh, that's when property values should be at their, at their lowest. Um, so then, then you have the expansion phase after that. And once the expansion phase kicks off, now there's lots of new uh, construction starts happening again. Property values are going. Are it's, it's now a seller's market again. Right now we're in a recession, and it's a seller's market. So that's very unusual. So Terry, what's a low risk type of properties? Well, um, okay. So actually, the lowest risk in, in commercial real estate, the lowest risk properties are the most expensive, have the lowest return on investment. So let me start there. Like the very lowest, the very lowest property risk right is is like buying a building that has a walmart in it let's say and our chances right now of mark and i both getting in different states different places of the world one of us getting struck by lightning right now as we're having this discussion are higher than walmart missing a rent payment so and but what happens is that walmart's properties sell at a four cap which means that if you were to pay cash for a walmart property you're going to be earning four percent or less uh on your on your investment. So if you if you finance a Walmart property, you're going to be earning much less than that, obviously. So, so single tenant properties, we call these net lease properties, have the lowest risk because they have credit tenants that have high credit ratings. You, you know, the United States government being one of your tenants, uh, the Postal Service even being one of your tenants, is a very, very ex amazingly low risk. Okay, so, um, on the other extreme today, we have office properties, okay? Like I have a, I have a client in um, downtown Los Angeles, and uh, I financed his property many years ago, but right now, his, he, he's at about, you know, maybe 55% occupancy, which is much better than 40% he was at, you know, six months ago, but still... The problem is also, uh, you know, it's affected all the ancillary businesses in downtown Los Angeles as well. You know, those properties. So, so office properties, the question is, are people going to go back into offices that are working at home right now? Well, some definitely will. So, but if we're talking about uh, a medical office property, if you own a lease on one of those, those are doing exceptionally well and always do well. Uh, a dental office property, during a recession, people can skip going to the dentist, but if they have some sort of medical event, they're not. They're going to still go to the doctor. So, so let's go to multifamily, which is a uh, a much lower risk property, and multi you know apartment buildings. Well, once again, as we spoke of, if it's going to be in a good neighborhood, 
an A or B or C property in a good neighborhood. And people during this really hard hit recession, you know, in those neighborhoods, uh, they're paying the rent. Just about all the tenants are paying the rent. In C minus class properties, in not such great neighborhoods where you have a lot of working class people who have lost their jobs and, and their unemployment is running out, we have, we're having you know 16 to 26 percent of the tenants not paying the rent during the coronavirus recession. So, uh, but otherwise, multifamily is safer, but it's really hard to find a, an apartment complex right now in any neighborhood. So self-storage, as we mentioned, is also uh, a very low risk uh, commercial property investment. Okay. And one of the questions we have from the audience here is, um, why do you think there's no drop in property prices well, in this recession? It's actually for a number of reasons. Uh, and we're, and we're, let's talk about, if we talk about residential, what happened is that, okay, so in 2020, uh, and this is from realtor.com, uh, they did a study and 40%, there were 40% fewer homes put on the market. And now, and then as we really, as the, um, and so, so inventory on homes really went down. Now, why? For two reasons. One is that during the um, height of the coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic, you know, homeowners didn't really want people coming into their homes, perhaps bringing the virus in with them. They didn't know. And uh, just actually, uh, and so that really, and also once uh, property owners realize that prices are really high, their, their thought is, well, they're probably going to be even higher tomorrow. Let's wait and see what happens. I don't want to sell right now. So these, these are factors, but the, that have kept, uh, you know, just, and also not having any new, one of the things that keeps uh, property values uh, for uh, just single family homes that are occupied by, by the owners, owner occupied and rental properties of all types uh, is construction starts. Uh, you know, our, our, um, we have a lot of uh, millennials that are now old enough, there were millennials and now they're now thinking about buying a home that they can't afford. But, but still we have a lot of, there, there's a lot of demand right now for homes. There's a lot of demand right now for people who want to diversify out of the stock market. Even though the stock market is soaring, everybody knows the bubble could pop any time. So they're looking for real estate to diversify into. So there's so much demand and, and so little supply that that's really what's going on right now. Yeah. I, I also, this is something I've always been interested in. Uh, from reading books on buying real estate, um, uh, they would write little to nothing down. Remember all those little to nothing down books uh, to buying real estate? Does, does that even exist where you can go get a property for nothing, almost nothing down or very little? All those schemes, unfortunately, there's so many gurus out there that teach this. Well, it was it's always difficult to do, but certainly not in, right now today. I would say, I hate to use the word impossible, but it's very, very difficult to do. Now, what you can't, you can get something, nothing, very little down. What you really want to do, what you can do right now is find properties for sale, perhaps by, you know, there's still sometimes where, this, where there's owner carry financing. And sometimes, um, you know, the property needs a lot of work and it's not going to qualify for, for bank financing. So uh, for that, or for a mortgage. So for that reason, that is, this, you know, the sellers are sometimes old, they're worn out, they're tired. They just want to get, you know, a monthly payment. So on that type of property, you could get your foot in the door uh, today. But, but otherwise, uh, in my book, I have a, you know, I, I have a chapter on, uh, you know, I really talk about, I'm, I'm just raising investors and I talk about you know, making money with other people's money. But I, I recommend to anybody who's going to do that, that they have, they certainly have to have at least 10% of their own money, their own skin in the game. And it's just really difficult to, I'm going to say very, very difficult if you don't have any money. But if you don't have much money and you want to read uh, chapter four on raising, uh, you know, investors and partners, you can learn. I mean, I have a method that's been tried and tested uh, many, so many times that I know that it works, but it's not easy. Here's another question from the audience. And I told you before we got started, we always get plenty of questions from the audience. Great. I love those. Yeah, me too. 
Please ask him if he has any thoughts about using real estate investment to leverage the transition to elective vehicles. What's oh, an electric vehicle? Okay, um, you know, that's, uh, we're, we're saying this. Okay, so we we um, probably about a third of our business comes from new commercial construction. It's just something that our firm we're advisors we're an advisory firm in that, and uh, we're seeing now that new apartment buildings and cities some more progressive cities, uh, you know, like Seattle and Portland, even though Portland, everybody knows that we're in a crisis there right now. Uh, and, but, but still, we we're seeing that actually apartment buildings are being built today with plugins for electric cars, you know, and so that's really a good thing. Uh, so actually we're seeing, we did a loan, we were working on a loan a number of years ago on a property in Portland, this didn't didn't hit the property. It didn't, you know, the property didn't happen, but where, where they were building a net zero uh, income property, energy property, where actually the, the property would have this apartment building would have produced more energy than it used, and they they had uh, plugins for you know for automobiles for electric cars in there, and I just thought it was a great. So this is part of our future. We're going to be seeing more of this, but right now. Um, it's not, it just, it takes, you know, there's all kinds of grants out there. Uh, yeah, we're getting one in my building for $40,000. I think the and energy putting grants. the infrastructure in is about 80000 Yeah, state, city, and federal. And yeah. so we're saying we should probably grab it now. Absolutely. Um, before, yeah. So I will let the rest of my board know that you are, are suggesting we go forward with that. Are there any capital gains tax on commercial properties in the U.S.? And if yes, what's the percentage of total growth? Yeah. Okay. What's the percentage of what? Uh, total growth. Uh, oh, I mean, are they asking what the percentage of total taxes? Or I don't understand what total. I think that's what they mean here. Yeah. Well, of course, there are capital gains tax. Uh, you know, it it's it's I believe it's around twenty four percent, but I could be wrong about that. I I. Uh, and that's probably changing under the Biden administration. So we'll have to see what that's going to take. It very, very likely could be. So well, what, what's the major due diligence mistakes investors make? OK, well, you write about this. In but your this book. is really important. So buying an investment property, whether it's a single family home that you're going to rent out or let's just say a small strip mall or a storage facility, it's a business. And it's I would say, you know, I've had clients that do buy let's just say that they take a look at an apartment complex and they love it because it's beautiful, you know, but they're falling in love. They actually fall in love with the property at first sight. And that's something you do not want to do. I already mentioned that earlier, you know, in our discussion here, but actually taking shortcuts on due diligence is what that leads to where you just are going by your gut feeling. You know, it's kind of like how often do people meet somebody when they're dating and they just fall in love at first sight and they have this gut feeling, but as they get to know the person, um, or I hate to say that if they do marry them down the road and, and the real you comes out, but you want to get to know the real you with the property you're buying before you buy it. And this is the, all, all uh, rental contracts have due diligence periods where you get to know the property. So not, so taking shortcuts, not getting all the, you know, buying the property today uh, based on what the uh, marketing flyer is showing as far as the condition and the net income of the property you know, people are doing that today. They're getting away with it more now. Realtors are getting away with uh, murder, so to speak, because uh, they can because there's so few properties for sale. But what you want to do is always take a look. Don't buy a property based on, you know, performa numbers, uh, projected numbers. You want to buy the property based on actual. This is something that this is one of the main due diligence mistakes that are that were made during good and bad economic times. Uh, would you buy a business? based upon its projected numbers? Absolutely not. You're gonna take a look at the tax returns and what that business has actually produced in income. You're gonna base it on its actual income. But real estate is about the only business I know of where you know uh, real estate brokers really get away and sellers get away with selling properties or this business based upon its potential income. And you know, in my book, I really recommend against that. But there are exceptions right now. If you really absolutely have to buy a property, you know, then you want you if you find a property that has under market rents, then that could be a good opportunity to buy a property today that's worth more than it's that it's uh, it's, it's you're, you're buying it more than it's worth because it has a lot of potential. 
but be careful. The person who had asked that question prior, um, 20, they were asking 24% of CGT. By growth, I meant the difference between the price paid at the point of purchase and money received at the point of sale. Right. Yes, that's correct. But it's also you can subtract, you get credit for everything you put into the property. All the improvements get subtracted out of that before you pay that you've made during your ownership of that property before you have to pay tax on it. So, but also if you want a 1031 exchange and take your equity from that property and buy a property that has more income, you know, then that's the way to go. So the next question we have here is, you uh, mentioned, um, uh, you talk about 15 minute methods of determining property value. What are some of those methods? Yeah, these really these really relate more to commercial properties, and um, and anyway, the reason I okay, so this is something that 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 we do and my I teach my clients to do every day because it's really not you know it's not nobody's going to get an appraisal when they're before they buy a property, but it's really a good idea to know what this property is worth in today's market. It's really, it's not going to do any good to buy a property that's not going to appraise at the purchase price. I mean, that's obvious. So what, what, what I've done, what I've done is I've developed these four methods. And in order to do them, you have to actually find uh, three other, you're going to take the subject property, the property that you're interested in purchasing, and then you're going to find three comparables, you know, properties that are similar type, the same type of property and similar size and quality. So where are you going to get those? Well, what you could do is go on a national, uh, you know, the your national property for sales site, commercial properties for sales site like LoopNet, which lists will most likely have some properties listed for sale in your neighborhood. And, and so you're going to have to come up with these three comparables, or you could ask a uh, commercial real estate broker for help, because they will definitely be able to come up with properties that have sold and properties that are for sale now on uh, MLS and can help you with, because you need these three comparables. Okay, so now once you have your subject property and the three comparables, the first method uh, is just taking a price per door. That's really simple. So uh, if there's, you know, let's just say if it's a six unit property, let's just say it's a four unit property and they're all, all and it's the price per door is 150,000 and the property's being sold for a million dollars, then, there you go. That, um, wait, that's not a million dollars. That's six hundred thousand. So if that property would be worth six hundred thousand based on the price per door. Okay. The, the next method is used the, using the GRM method, which is a little bit more complicated, but it's a way of quickly identifying what a property is worth. And basically, um, that's gross rent multiplier, and it's based upon the price of the property divided by the gross annual income, uh, gross annual rents, okay? So we're gonna take the price of the property, divide that by the total of the gross annual rents. And that will give you a percentage um, anywhere from let's say 8% today to 12 to 14%. Uh, so, uh, so, and then the last one is just taking the cap rates uh, of, the, of all the, the subject property and the cap and the, uh, the subject property and the uh, three comparables and averaging those together. And then you're going to take all three methods that I just gave you and you're going to average those together. Surprisingly, this method actually is pretty darn accurate as far as coming up with the value of the property because we're actually really looking at four different methods. We're looking at three methods and then we're averaging them all together. So, Terry, is there a formula or a certain amount of money you should put away for repairs and other issues? I was I was putting away, you know, every year I was putting away months of rent, one month of rent, figuring at some point I have to replace uh, the roof and all kinds of other things. So is there a formula for this? You know, is it 10%, 20%? Yeah, Mark, I am so glad. I'm so happy that you asked that question because I think it's just about the most important thing that anybody can do. And if we, if we, one of the most important things you could do to recession-proof a property, okay? And that's and that, that that is to have a rainy day fund where you have money put aside, not only for repairs and maintenance, but also for the possibility that many of your tenants might not be paying rent. And if that happens, 
All I can tell you is that, because I went through, of course, the Great Recession of 2008, and the, my clients that actually had a rainy day fund, had money put aside, like you're talking about, made it through. Every single one of them made it through, okay? And so the ones that did not, that were, the moment they had extra money, they <laughs> bought another property with it or bought something with it, like a new car or whatever. Okay, so those people lost their properties at large and did not fare well during a recession. So my basic rule, and I have this also in my book, is to take a look at the um, at the repairs and maintenance of what, what they run monthly, okay? And, and, and multiply that uh, times uh, six months. And I would say six months of that repairs and maintenance is what you should be aiming towards saving. And, and every month from your profits, you know, if you could put like 10% of that profit back in towards your rainy day fund, you're going to be very pleased that you did if you need it someday. I'm sure a lot of people needed that rainy day fund uh, while the government said you don't have to pay your rent because so many people are just um, small independents, you know, as a way to um, diversify their per, uh, portfolio. Yeah. And they don't have, they're not setting on gobs and yeah, money. And they're can, not a REIT uh, where they might have a you know, few hundred million dollars. Yeah. Okay. What I'm also going to bring into this is just recession-proofing your property. And the number one thing you could do to recession-proof your property is to make sure that you have a break-even point when you buy a property that you're setting it up so that it can pay all the expense. Okay, that if it drops down to 75% occupancy, um, as low as 75% occupancy, that you can pay your all the expenses of the property and mortgage payment. Now, there's not going to be any profit for you, so you better have some other form of income. But if you could buy a property and know that if it drops down to 75% occupancy, 70% occupancy would be even better, then you're going to make it through a recession. Can you explain the concept of non-recourse financing that you mentioned in the book? Sure. And I'd say the majority of the lending that we do with our firm, apartment loan store, and business loans for our two mortgage banking firms is non-recourse, okay? And these are, these, uh, what you have at, at all community banks is recourse lending. When you borrow money for an automobile, that's recourse lending. So what happens, is that if you, on recourse lending, if you, what you're going to be doing is signing a personal guarantee. And anybody who invests you know, with you is going to be signing that personal guarantee as well. And so if you default on that mortgage and it goes to foreclosure, the lender can, uh, they, what they're going to do is they don't, unfortunately, when properties go foreclosed through foreclosure, um, then what happens is the lender is looking for fast. And so what they're going to do is they're going to offer the property at a discount. Why? Because of that personal guarantee. Um, they can go, they can make up the deficiency of what they did not get from selling the property by going after your, your other assets. And so with non-recourse lending, they don't get to do that. Non-recourse lending, the, the loan is made just to a single ownership entity like an LLC. It's not made to individuals. So the only thing a lender can really take back is the property itself. Now that's painful, but it just doesn't mean they can go after your home, your vacation home, your boats, your autos, your RVs, your child's education fund. But with recourse lending, they could do all that. So, and also, um, okay. So a lot of I, a lot of my one of my main specialties is, is working with uh, syndicated invest, you know, deals where my clients actually bring in investors and. The reason we they we can they could bring in investors, especially on you know on multi-million dollar deals, is because they're doing using non-recourse funding to do that. So, so these investors could come in and invest their money and not have to worry about signing a personal guarantee where they're risking their other assets. So non-recourse lending, there's quite a bit of my book on that, but non-recourse lending, getting to a place where you could get into that is essential if you're going to be, if you really want to become a, you know a mogul of some size in investing in real estate. For sure. Uh, and I think everybody aspires to being a mogul in that space. I, I had, there was a, uh, sure. I had a, um, somebody come in and speak to my students when I was teaching and every year he bought one or two new properties. And at age 40, 
he now accumulated enough properties that if his primary business went under, his income wouldn't be affected at all. Uh, and so I think that's what everybody aspires uh, aspires to. Absolutely. Are there different rules for partnerships by state? And what do you need to know? Because you talked about people forming partnerships. Yeah, well, yeah, actually a lot. Okay, so there's 50 states and I there's no way that I can be. We 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 get we are not allowed to give legal advice because we're not attorneys. But what yeah, I can sure. tell you is that a lot of my clients, for the more, most part, most of my clients own their properties today in a single asset entity where that, which is, let's just say, it's going to be a limited liability company, LLC, that just owns that one property. Why? Because if they are sued, the tenants by a tenant who breaks a leg on the property or something, that tenant can only go after that individual property. They can't go after the property owner's other assets. And so, but one of the reasons, and so the laws of the governance over what I found over owning a partnership in an LLC, they're very similar from one state to another. However, a lot of my really savvy clients have their properties owned in the state of Delaware. They have, they have a Delaware LLC. Why? Corporation. Yeah, because yeah. also it gives you privacy. There's a lot of other perks. Uh, which I won't go into right now, but one of the things, what happens is that if it, if uh, if you want to keep all of your assets private and you want them in Delaware, nobody's going to know that you own the property because it's really easy to, if you, even if you own the property in a, in, a, in a, uh, you know, it's very easy just to go to public records and find out who owns that property. You know, even if it's owned by uh, an LLC or something, but not in the state of Delaware because they don't they don't permit that. So there you go. All right, so we only have a, a few minutes left, so I want to ask a couple of quick questions here. Uh, is it better to borrow from a community bank as opposed to a big uh, money center bank? Because I kind of think with a community bank, uh, you can become a super valuable client, and if you get in trouble, they might give you a little bit more leeway as opposed to Wells Fargo. So what's your take on that? Okay, well, first of all, my take on, okay, so we just, you know, we're member because uh, our, our head office is in Oregon. We're members of the Oregon Bankers Association and the National Bankers Association. We get a lot of referrals from banks because there's a lot of, because of bank regulation they cannot do. They really cannot do. There's a lot of loans they cannot do. But one of the basic tenets of bank lending is to never make a loan to somebody who really needs the money and is not doing well. So if you're not really, if you don't have you know enough income. Uh, it doesn't matter what the size of the bank is. However, what I could tell you is that community banks, all banks today in America are doing well. They have, most of them uh, have money. They mostly have a lot of deposit money that they're not paying anything on that they really need to lend out. So what I'm going to is kind of switch to a different topic on what you're asking though. And that, uh, let me see what time it is. Um, okay, we're almost done. Yeah, okay. So, Community banks are great for getting started in rental properties or commercial properties, small because, uh, but you do have to have additional sources of income, more than one, to get a loan at a bank. And they're going to look at, they're going to collect tax returns. They're going to take a, they're going to take a chance on you uh, if you, and they're and they're going to give you. You don't have to have a high net worth. You don't have to have a lot of post-closing liquidity. There's, it's easier to get your foot in the door with a small community bank. The large, uh, the large banks today make more loans to wealthier people that have higher net worths and they're hard, they're, they're more stringent and they have lower rates. They have better, they can fix the rate for longer. They have, you know, and then we have a lot of national programs like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, where we don't have to even collect tax returns and, you know, and we have private money available and so on. So there's a lot of different choices today for, for borrowers of income properties. And, uh, and, and so that's basically, you know, uh, the top 15 uh, lending sources are uh, in my chapter on lending at the, or my encyclopedia section in my book. So, well, Terry, I've got to tell you, it was really interesting. I loved your book. I think for beginners, it's a great book. And for savvy investors who've been in, uh, have been doing it for quite some time. I think it's a great book, one that certainly should be in colleges because I think kids would really benefit by understanding about investing in both commercial and residential real estate. So I want to wish you all the best with this book. Thank you again for coming on. And you're right now at your home in the Dominican Republic. 
I, I have to say, I'm sorry that we bothered you today. You should be out on the beach. It's okay. I, I, I'm very lucky I could work here. Just want to add one thing. That said, right now Amazon has uh, my book on a, the best sale in the country. So yeah, I put the link to everybody. Super. Moving in contact. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. Have a safe weekend. See you all next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.